Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated. While we think, hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated. While we think we're getting good health care and why we're usually wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm very happy to say that we have Sharon Clayman-Farber on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Hunger for Ecstasy, Trauma, the Brain, and the Influence of the 60s. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. On this very snowy day. Um, Could you begin the uh, interview uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm a psychotherapist in private practice in Hastings-on-Hudson in New York. Um, I'm a clinical social worker, board-certified diplomate in clinical social work. Um, And I... I I specialize in child and adolescent treatment and treatment of people who've been uh, subjected to trauma of one kind or another. And I I had specialized training in eating disorders as well. Um, And I I like I like to take on challenging patients, often the kind of patients that other therapists don't want because they're very difficult or anxiety-provoking. And I, I know not to take on too many of those at once, but uh, I, I like the challenge of that. Mm-hmm. 
could you tell us why you wrote uh, Hungry for Ecstasy? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I've that's Hunger for Ecstasy is my second my second book. It really grew out of my first book, When the Body is the Target, which was all about um, uh, people who inflict harm on themselves, physical harm, either through um, self mutilation. Uh, eating disorders, or even those you know those people who get themselves compulsively tattooed and, and pierced, um, and um, when I handed in the final manuscript for that book, uh, and that, that all that grew out of my doctoral dissertation, um, but when I handed in the final manuscript for that book, uh, Jason Aronson, the publisher. Um, after he told me he's going to have to cut out four chapters because it would make a very long book much too long. Um, but he said, uh, he said, I think you really need, he said, I think some of those chapters I cut out comprise a second book. And I said, okay, do you want to tell me what that second book <laughs> is all about? And he said, well, I'll leave that up to you to figure out. So I finally fig- figured out how the subject of ecstatic experience uh, was going to be what I was, I was going to write about in the, in the second book. Um, I had discovered that with in my dis- dissertation study, I asked uh, subjects to describe what um, cutting or burning themselves or starving themselves or stuffing themselves and making themselves throw up, what that did for them. Um, And all of them indicated in one way or another that it helped them to feel better. It was really a form of self-medication. Um, but it didn't last too long, and they had to keep doing it again and again and again. You know, the addictive aspect of it. And um, but there were a, a f- just a few people who wrote about it in a way that made it sound like when they were doing it, whatever the it was, they were having an experience that sounded to me like an ecstatic one. It was more than just they felt better. They like they were in some other kind of altered state. So I got that's what. And as I went through the chap the chapters that had been cut out, um, really I was I I discovered I was writing about I had written about people who take all sorts of risks, often life threatening risks, in order to have some kind of uh, ecstatic experience. Um, So I decided that's what I'm going to write about. And then I I started to think, well, what is ecstasy anyway? Um, And I found that it's become sort of a synonym for joy uh, or for orgasm. Um, And then I... uh, I started to 
to look at to see what literature there was, any research literature on the state of ecstasy. And there really wasn't very much at all. Um, it was very odd. I found, um, I should tell you, you know, besides loving to write, I'm, a, I guess what you'd call an independent scholar. Uh, and have been for a very long time. So I, um, I somehow, I came across online a book written in, the, I think, 1961 by an English writer named Marganita Lasky. And she had written some, a novel. It was about a time travel novel. Um, but in it, uh, her protagonist, a woman, was uh, rec- reclining on a chaise lounge uh, having an ecstatic experience. And she, the, the novel was a big hit, at least in England. Um, and the uh, Lasky started to wonder how is it that people so readily accepted my description of an ecstatic experience? Because I don't know what an ecstatic experience (laughs) is. So, um, and I guess she's also an independent scholar like like me. And she wrote a book uh, about ecstasy. And what she did was she interviewed people she knew uh, and ask them questions, all sorts of questions about ecstatic experience and what characterized it. How did how did it happen? Um, do the, does do they have this frequently or rarely? And she came up with all sorts of very very interesting data that's contained in her book. So that was kind of my launching pad. And I came to the conclusion from everything that she said um, that um, an ecstatic experience was a form of dissociation that hasn't really been identified before. It's... uh, something of an out-of-body experience. And so I got very interested in the neuroscience of ecstatic experiences. And I'll tell you, writing this book was really, uh, was such an adventure for me. You know, I never knew where it was going to go or what I would discover. Sounds terrific. (laughs) Huh? <laughs> it sounds terrific. <laughs> I, I wish my books were like that. <laughs> you would what? I wish my books were like that. I seem to always know where they're going. Oh well, you know, I, 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 I think I was a writer before I knew I wanted to be a, a, a therapist, um, uh, and I always loved to write. Mm-hmm. So and and I just enjoy it so much. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I interrupted. You were talking about the neurological. Uh, yeah. Basis yeah. So ahead. I got yeah. very interested in the the neurological end of this, and I came across a book written by a neurologist, 
uh, down at the uh, University of Kentucky, uh, Kevin Nelson, and I forgot. Well, I forgot. I forgot the the title of his his book, but he's written a great deal about near death experiences and um, near death experiences and other out of body experiences, and he came up with um, a scientific explanation for for near-death experiences. Um, and a lot of people have been writing about it. Um, uh, a neuros... An, I think he's a neuropsychiatrist. I'm not sure, but he's a neuroscientist. Uh, he he wrote. He, he's been on the bestseller book, uh, list for weeks with his book about his near-death experience, and he tries to explain it. Um, uh, actually, Oliver Sacks said it. So his book is absolutely unscientific, and he explained why why it's unscientific. But anyway, this Kevin Nelson. He wrote about scientifically how we can have out of body experiences, and I mean Elizabeth Taylor wrote about wrote about hers. Uh, you know, a number of um, celebrities have written about theirs. Carl Jung wrote about his. Um, lots of people have written about this, and it's sort of a, a standard kind of thing, you know that. Uh, there they were, and either happened when they were on the operating in the operating room under anesthesia, or uh, something like that, or they had were very hurt and they were waiting for the ambulance to come, but all of a sudden they they saw a, a light at a distance and a tunnel that led you to the light. And at the end of the tunnel were people, dear dear ones, who uh, who were dead, beckoning them, come over, come over to our side, you know, to come and be with them in the afterlife. And the, it, the, it's almost a, a stereotyped kind of experience. And anyway, this guy Nelson explained neurologically how this happens. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And what he wrote, see, I, I, I corresponded with him, and I uh, asked him. He actually wrote an endorsement of my 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 book. It's on the back cover. Um, but he wrote an endorsement, and I asked him, "Do you think?" your explanation could hold true for the state of ecstasy. And he said he, he thought so. Um, but anyway, he came up with this explanation that um, these experiences can happen when, we, when, when we're in some sort of um, unconscious state. Uh, now, we can either be in REM sleep, which is the kind of, you know, rapid eye movement is REM sleep, which is the, the state 
uh, of consciousness that we're in when we dream, and it's fairly close to consciousness. Um, and then there's non-REM sleep, which is a much deeper sleep, and we usually don't dream in non-REM, the non-REM state. He said these strange experiences happen when somehow there's a mixture of the REM sleep and non-REM sleep, and it causes a kind of... Uh, like a momentary paralysis where the person is lying in the bed and they can't move. And um, and then they start to have this bizarre experience. I, I've actually, I should say, I've, I, I've read about this too, and I have experienced that. You did? Yes, I have experienced that moment where um, you are frozen in, in, in a kind of semi-sleep and you can't yeah. move. I, and I just right. couldn't move. It right. was like a dream, but I couldn't move. Right. I think right. it was pretty common, actually, but go ahead. Yeah, well, anyway, so he he wrote about that, and I was just fascinated because, you know, these experiences that just seem so strange but so common, that, you know, that I thought how wonderful to be able to understand it scientifically. Um, so that, that's what I tried to do. And that's what I, I wrote about. And um, uh, But in addition to writing about how ecstasy happens uh, and why it's not joy and why it's not orgasm, um, I, I, I put chapters in there uh, to talk about different kinds of, of ecstatic states that people might experience. Um, I wrote, you know, there's a chapter in BB um, about the 60s and why um, the 60s was really crucial for this hunger for ecstasy because it was in the 60s or, you know, Allen Ginsberg he decided he wanted, he said, life should be ecstasy. That's what he said. And people listened to him. And then when he went to India in search of ecstatic experiences, the whole culture went to India. I mean, that's why at that time and even now, you know, people were had these, you know, mattress uh, bedspreads. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, people wore uh, mattress clothing. You know, and everything was Indian and exotic. Um, uh, but there were, were also strange practices. Well, strange to us at least, but in India, uh, strange in, in India, ecstasy is revered. The state of ecstasy is revered. And uh, prolonging the state of ecstasy becomes uh, an aim that many people have. And they, they've done this through some very, very dangerous practices. Maybe the way they do it there is not so dangerous. I don't know about that. But here it certainly is. Um, there's uh, something called body suspension. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I'm not talking about anything that has to do with your automobile. <laughs> okay? Uh, I'm talking literally about people who will volunteer to allow themselves, their whole bodies, to be suspended in the air on hooks. Now, these are hooks that, very big hooks that are meant, you can buy them in a marine supply store. Big hooks for catching very big fish. And if you Google body suspension, that you'll get to a place where you'll be able to see photographs of people having different kinds of body suspensions. And it's become a, it's become a kind of performance art. Um, people, it's kind of a under the radar thing that's happening and word of it gets out that, you know, there's going to be a body suspension on this date and this place and people come and they bring, you know, picnic meals <laughs> and wine and beach chairs, you know, and they sit there and they watch while this person is suspended in the air. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say this practice uh, is, uh, in the Native American context, is, is um, depicted in a movie called A Man Called Horse. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but Richard Ab Harris gets yeah, suspended. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's both, I, I forgot which tribe it is in this country that, that does that. But, they, they, but it, these are tribal practices that... Um, some people in, in our culture have adopted, uh, and there's a tremendous danger when you would adopt a practice from another mm -hmm. culture, um, because that practice grows out of that culture and mm -hmm. that culture's spiritual beliefs. And so when you just adopt it a whole hog as your own, um, it's very easy for it to go very wrong mm -hmm. and for people to get hurt or for people to die. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a, a guy who calls himself Fakir Musafar. Um, he was at, I forgot his, his real name, but from an early age, he, he, he must have had some sort of strange neuropsychiatric sensory disorder or something like that but he would like to put pins in himself um, and do all sorts of things to his body to mutilate his body you know using pins or, or knives or whatever and um, I guess when he 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 went he ended up going to some tattoo or body piercing convention um, and he showed off the things that he had done to his his body mm. um, and I think that may be where you know people got the idea to put uh, to pierce their penis and yeah. put a ring a ring through it yeah there's you know? a lot of that yes yeah and and all all this kind of business mm -hmm. um but so he 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 adopted the name Fakir Musafar because he was a big hit at this uh, body piercing show, and he he developed a new persona for himself rather than just 
a very strange guy. <laughs> he did very bizarre things to himself. He became a shaman. Uh-huh. And and if you go online, you can find his website. And he has, puts out a journal called Body Play. Mm. Um, he has also successfully reduced his waistline to something like 20 inches uh, by wrapping himself very tightly in belts and tightening these belts and just walking around like he's the, the things that he's done are just extraordinary um so i wrote that was one of the things that was in one of the the chapters that was omitted from my you know deleted from the first book so that's how i ended up pursuing the whole subject mm-hmm. Of ecstasy, mm-hmm. but then I went on, and I after the you know talking about the '60s and what was going on in the '60s that produced this uh, hunger for ecstasy, uh, including of course you know the psychedelic drugs. Um, I have chapters on ecstasies of pain and near death experiences. Um, I have a chapter on some of the ecstasies and psychosis that are induced by cult involvement, which is something I have a tremendous interest in. Um, I have a chapter on religious ecstasies, where a whole long thing about the development of the, you know, the uh, stigmata mm-hmm. and how that happens. Um, and other kinds of religious ecstasies as well. Not only the Christian ones, although that sort of predominates, but uh, ecstasies in snake handling, sex down south, mm-hmm. um, which is really just fascinating. Um, ecstasies of... Uh, uh, Hasidic Jews, you know, that Hasidism is really a response against a thinking kind of Judaism. They want an experiential, ecstatic religion, you know, so they dance around and they go into these ecstatic states. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Like Sufi Muslims do sometimes as well. Like who? Sufi Muslims do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, the front the front cover of my book shows a whirling dervish. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whirling dervish. Um, you know, actually, I can send you a you a picture of the cover, or you can get one yourself. I think it kind of it it I, I selected that image myself for the cover because it uh, it said it illustrated so much about. The experience of ecstasy. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of movement, swirling, and light. But um, you know, so that that's the part about religious ecstasies. And then I have something called killing cannibalism and other ecstasies from hell, uh, including um, the ecstasies uh, of the SS officers through killing ecstasies. Um, I have a chapter on creative ecstasies, which I really enjoy, and it's really ab- about the nature of creativity and very um, 
uh, it's re- the relationship of creativity to mental illness, you know, just what I think that relationship is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let, let me ask you a question. This is yeah. a good summary of the book, uh, and I hope people will read it. The, the, the first question I want to ask is that you've said that ecstasy is not um, joy and it is not orgasm. What is mm-hmm. it? It's it's a dissociated state of consciousness, mm-hmm. a form of out of body experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a dissociation between the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you, um, you know, like all subjective experiences or especially emotional conditions, they're very difficult to relate in words. It's easy to say, uh, "Yes, I had that." experience you know orgasm is example you can't relate to someone what an orgasm is like but you can say when you do the following three things you'll have an orgasm and you'll feel what it's like mm-hmm. um but you can't really describe it in words so why so why isn't an orgasm for example ecstasy because it, is, it doesn't have that dissociative well element? It, it, occasionally it can be occasionally it can be but um i think you know it's it's an experience of tension building up sexual tension, building and building and building until it reaches a peak. And then it's a complete release of tension. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you feel it in your muscles, you feel it in your body. Um, It's very nice, it's very pleasant, but I don't think it is ecstatic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess one thing I would say is, I'll be a little bit autobiographical here. I had a kind of wayward youth, and I did drugs, and um, of all different kinds. And uh, uh, one of the things I came to associate with an ecstatic state was what uh, people who do drugs call the rush. Mm-hmm. Right, the rush that you get when you do coke, the rush that you get when you do a methamphetamine, the rush mm-hmm. that you get when you shoot heroin doesn't last very long. The rush you get when you have an orgasm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't last very long, and then you always chase it. You want it. You chase the dragon. You want that back. Doesn't come because the receptors get numbed or whatever happens. I don't know. Are those ecstatic experiences? Um, I don't know. Um, I think they. I think that they can be for for some people. Um, but I would need. I would really need to know more about it. But you know, I think people use drugs and alcohol. Because they're looking for an altered state of consciousness. They mm-hmm. can't stand to be in the skin they're in. Right. They want out. They want out. Mm-hmm. Um, and drugs give them that out. Many, mm-hmm. you know, many years ago, before I had any professional training at all, I worked in a, a drug detox program in Manhattan, uh, you know, with hardcore heroin addicts. And I learned from them, I learned so much about the nature of addiction that has been so helpful to me uh, in understanding eating disorders and and self-mutilation, you know, and a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one thing about drugs that that I, I can say with some confidence is that they always work. Which is uh-huh. to say, if you want an altered state of consciousness, it might not be pleasurable. And for many drug addicts and especially yeah. alcoholics, it is not pleasurable. Yeah. But you can get the altered state of consciousness every time. Unlike, right. let's say, I don't know, meditation or, you know, yeah. know running or something. Or I don't know. Right, it, right, it, it, right. Those, those, those work, but they're harder to get. But, you know, yeah. if, if, you, um, if, you, uh, you know if you boot some smack, you're going to feel different. It may be bad. 
but you're going to feel different. And, yeah. and I think that for many, many people who are drug addicts, it, it really is that I think you you put your finger right on it. It is, it is just precisely disassociative. You don't want to be where you are. You don't want to feel what you feel. Yeah. 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 You, are, you are afraid of what you're feeling and there's an easy way to go someplace else. That's so you right. do this thing. Um, right. and, and, and that's the curious thing that I don't think many people understand about addiction is that it, it's, it's often not pleasurable. I mean, especially, you know, end stage alcoholism, those alcoholics are not happy. Yeah. yeah <laughs> they are not yeah. happy people. Yeah. Because the drugs stop doing yeah. what they used to do. Yeah. They lose their, they use their oomph. Yeah. Right. They take you to a place that is profoundly not ecstatic, but it is right. different. And so we have to do something even more potent and more dangerous. Right. To to try to get there, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and that's exa- that's exactly yeah. right. Is that you know, I've 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 always uh, I've never used drugs. I experimented a little bit with pot, not much, but I've always been. I guess I'm too, my, my personality. I'm just too cautious. Well, either that or you're not. not you know, not too cautious. I don't <laughs> mean that's uh, that's the bad thing. <laughs> I think it was. I think it's a good thing to be cautious. Well, but I mean, I think you point this out in the book. I mean, the, and, and people will say this, for example, in AA and a number of 12-step programs, that the alcohol yeah. is a symptom. It's not the problem. Right. It's a symptom. And therefore, what, what that kind of shows is that, and, and again, I'm not a psychologist, and I should probably give all kinds of disclaimers. This is not medical advice. Right. But uh, if you're predisposed to this, it probably means you're depressed in some way. That there's mm-hmm. something about reality that you can't quite handle. Um, right. Normal people can handle it just fine. So when they drink, it's okay. But but there's something about reality that you can't handle. And it's probably, you know, I don't know if it's genetic or if it's somehow, um, uh, you know, that you it's a learned behavior, but whatever it is. And I've, you know, I know a lot of people who are in this condition that they were, and I, I hate to use this terminology, but they were broken before they got broken. Uh-huh. This was an, an attempt to fix themselves. They were trying to uh-huh. fix themselves. They were self-medicating. And, you know, as you talk to any drug addict, they'll always say, it worked for a long time. And sometimes yeah. it really does. It does work for a long time. Right, and, and, right. Until it doesn't. <laughs> That's really the tragedy of that it doesn't work anymore. Right, yeah, right. Right. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was, and this is sort of my second question, is you describe um, the desire for um, the ecstatic experience as a manic defense. Can you talk a right. little bit about that? I don't know the psychoanalytic terminology very well, but I'd, I'd, I'd really like to be taught. So if you could put oh. that in the context of, of, of psychoanalysis. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I, you know, I, in the first chapter, uh, the first chapter starts with a personal experience I had, um, many years ago, actually nine, 1991, November 20th, 1991, if you want the precise date, I don't think you do, but I'm telling you anyway. Um, my husband had been diagnosed with cancer and he was scheduled for a surgery that we hoped would cure him of cancer. And this was after five months of many, many diagnostic procedures and second and third opinions. Uh, And he had been, uh, I brought him down to the hospital the day before and he was admitted. And then I woke up uh, the day of the surgery and I was anticipating a very long and grueling day and I didn't know how I was going to get through it. Uh, and I drove to Mount Sinai, and I, as I drove, I was noticing the, that the air smelled like morning, and the, the Hudson River was bluer than I'd ever seen it before, shimmering in the sunshine, and I was just stunned by how beautiful it was. 
And as I continued to drive, I found myself getting joyful and excited about his surgery, but also calm at the same time. It's very strange. And I thought, what an absolutely glorious day to get this damn cancer out of him. Mm -hmm. And for a minute, just for a moment, I noticed how odd my thinking was. You know, I still had a bit of an observing ego. And but I didn't want to think any more about it because I think I knew intuitively if you think about it, you ruin it, you know. <laughs> um, so I didn't think about it, and uh, there was no question in my mind that cancer would be entirely removed and that he would be okay, and our son, who was a high school senior at the time, would be okay, uh, and everything would be all right. And that state of mind, then sort of, by the time I got there, I was in a lower key, but I was in a pretty good frame of mind. That was a manic defense. That was a manic defense. And it happened again uh, 11 years after his surgery. Um, he had to have another surgery, a radical procedure that was meant to resolve um, these constant bacterial infections he got as a result of the a consequence of the first surgery. And again, I'm driving to the hospital, driving down the West Side Highway along the Hudson River and trying to be strong and feeling like I needed something so badly. Um, but I am a cautious type, and I don't. I wouldn't think of picking up a drug. Uh, and what happened, though, was very, very bizarre. Uh, all of a sudden, I began hearing Zydeco music <laughs> playing in my head. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I it brought me back to. I, we, I was transported back to the French Quarter Festival. This was before you know the Hurricane Katrina where my husband and I were part of a crowd listening to Zydeco on the banks of the Mississippi. And so I popped a CD into the CD player, and usually I don't, I don't listen to music or listen to the radio at all when I drive. I like to think. Um, but as I listened to Aaron Neville singing, I put the voodoo on you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found myself sort of like catapulted out of myself and uh, just flying higher and higher and it felt like the music had flowed into my blood and I slapped out the beat on the steering wheel and I'm bouncing on the seat and flexing my leg and gluteal muscles and singing and it was like I was in some kind of a groove going higher and higher and my feet wanted to tap and but I'm a cautious person. I said that before. And there was an inner signal that warned me I could get myself killed if I allowed myself to give in to this. And I knew I had to stop it immediately, and I did. That's my signal anxiety. Thank goodness for that. Mm -hmm. um, but that frame of mind, that manic frame of mind was a manic defense because I, at the, I was anticipating what my husband's funeral would be like, you know? 
Mm-hmm. I was anticipating that we were going to play, I was going to play It's All Over Now, Baby Blue at mm-hmm. his funeral. You know, I was picking out the music. Um, uh, this is what I, I was afraid of. I was afraid he was going to die and I was going to lose him. And I couldn't stand it. So, and so at that point, came, there came my manic defense right. yeah, to take to me yeah. completely away from it. And uh, it it real it helped it helped to get me through the days of both surgeries. You know, um, I got I got through them. Um, so I, and that's how I I got. Uh, how I came when I, looking back at this spirit, this experience while I was writing the book, I ca- I came to understand that I was really looking to go into an ecstatic state, to just abandon myself to that experience. Yeah, I mean, I think it's at that moment that someone like me would take drugs. Yeah. Instantly, I wouldn't, right. I wouldn't yeah, hesitate yeah. for a second. <laughs> I mean, well, I now Marshall, because I don't take any drugs. Us, <laughs> right, I don't take drugs at all now. I don't drink. I don't take drugs. I don't do anything. Like you know, I have uh-huh. the boy, am I squeaky clean? But the former me would have definitely, if there was a former me, definitely would have taken drugs right then. I would have drank. That's what I would have done. But I, I should say, I mean, again, to wax a little bit autobiographical, I have experienced the kind of thing you're talking about. But I always called it a kind of adrenaline rush, and and it occurred at moments of crisis when I knew that I was really needed. For example, in a car accident right. or when somebody was hurt when I was playing basketball. It's uh-huh. like my, my perception narrowed. I became very focused. I became very calm but and absolutely untroubled. And uh-huh. I did kind of – I saw what was going on as if I were watching myself do stuff. Right. But, and, and I do recall that feeling because I really liked it. I mean, yeah. I really liked it, but I, out, out of body. Yeah, experience. I, I really liked that, that experience. Yeah, that I, it, I always thought of it as an adrenaline rush, like a super adrenaline rush. But it only mm. occurred in places where there was a crisis. Uh-huh. Um, I could induce an, an adrenaline rush in a lot of ways. I used to play sports all the time, but this was a different thing, a, a very different thing. And it's only happened a couple of times in my life, where, and especially it's associated when people get hurt, and I have uh-huh. to help them. Uh-huh. I just. Everything becomes very focused, and, yeah. and you get this. I think some psychologists called it a cold flow or, or something like that, where it's just you. You have this. It is. It is ecstatic, and, and I remember thinking that was just. It was horrible, but I felt great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> while I was helping that person, I just felt absolutely, really, really, really terrific. So, mm-hmm. so then the thesis of the book, or one of the theses of the book, is that that this is my. Um, and I want. I don't. Again, I don't know the terminology very well. It's it's some part of my brain defending me against some reality that another part of my brain can't accept. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I, mean, I mean, one thing is curious to me that it, uh, and again, this may uh, begin a discussion of kinds of people, uh, but for, for me, it just doesn't happen often enough. In other mm-hmm. words, I, I find myself in a lot of situations which are pretty, I, I don't know, they're challenging for me. I don't want to be in them. Mm-hmm. But I don't kick into that kind of out of body experience. I don't have the manic defense. Mm-hmm. I wish I did, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I just get depressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you see what I mean. Well, you know, so after after having this pe- peculiar experience, um, I, I never ha- it never happened again. Mm-hmm. It never happened again, and but I wanted it to. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was it was so wonderful. 
Yeah, that's called chasing the dragon if you're a heroin addict. Not that I ever was. I was never a heroin addict, but I know some. Yeah, um, you chase yeah. that experience uh, and because it, it's so you, it's really imprinted on your brain what it, what it felt like. And, right. and so you want it again and again. I, you know, orgasms are a little bit like that, although they're easily induced. I won't mm-hmm. go on about that uh, mm-hmm. for most people. So it, it, it is, you know, it does it does have a kind of manic aspect because it's, it's repeated again and again and again, and it's always sought after. Mm-hmm. It, you never get enough of it. It's, it's an insatiable sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, so at the end of the book, you, you, you talk in a little bit more therapeutic sense about, about people that actually harm themselves by pursuing ecstasy right. um, and, and how they might be treated, how they, how they might be identified and treated. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. 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 Um, well, often, you know, you're treating somebody and you discover that there's, there's something that they do that is potentially life-threatening. Uh, but they don't regard it that way. They just love to do it. Um, and I think if you, you know, you ha- you, you've established a solid attachment relationship with, with that patient, um, you can take a stance. It's not a neutral stance by any means, um, and I'm not a big advocate of the neutral stance anyhow. Uh, but it's a, a stance that's you're, you're being protective of your patient. You're trying to help them to anticipate what might happen if they continue to do this. And you're trying to help them to find another way to live so that they don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's a, I think it, it really means, you know, you, you, you're sticking your neck out with a, with a patient. Um, you're working in a way that, um, kind of unorthodox um, but the, if a patient feels that you really care about him and even if you care about him that much that you express it passionately if you feel that way I think this, this creates a kind of indelible experience for a patient because often they never felt that anybody really cared about them mm-hmm. enough Mm-hmm. Before, right, and 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 so when they can establish a safe and secure relationship with their therapist, that that can help them to relinquish or give up that relationship to pain and suffering and life-threatening risk-taking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, am, I, am I being clear? No, you're being very clear, and I, I agree with what you say completely. I, I mean, it jives with my own experience. I won't be more bi- biographical than that. I mean, I know that, uh, that when uh, my problem ceased, one of the most important things for me is I met people that did care about me. And at the time, I felt that nobody cared about me. All I cared yeah. about was the drugs and alcohol. Right. And ev- I had sloughed everything else off. Yeah. You know, it was, and you know, again, by the time they get to you, they're at that state. Well, hopefully yeah. you get them earlier, but they're at yeah. that state where it's them and the drugs and alcohol and there's nothing else in the world and they don't really care. Yeah. But the expression of some sort of interest in somebody is a, is a, 
it, it's a very powerful thing. And, and so I agree with you completely. The only thing I would add one one element, and that is, uh, and this is drawn from my own experience, and that is that someone who's addicted to ecstasy, of not ecstasy, the drug, but ecstasy, that the feeling, well, and and is being harmed by it, needs to see people and talk to people who have overcome that or have learned to live with it successfully. And and again, when I first came in, so to say, the very powerful thing for me was seeing people who had come through it and they right. were living normal lives because right. I didn't think that was possible. That just didn't right. seem to me possible. Um, and I saw them and it, you know the proof was right there before my eyes. There they were, normal yeah. people who had been yeah. just like me. And I was like, yeah. wow, that is amazing. I truly didn't believe it. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, and then they expressed interest in me just as you say. Uh, uh, and, and, and at that point, you, it's like you open a whole new world for them. Or it, it, just as it was for me. And I, I realized that I didn't, you know, what they said was very, you don't have to live like you're living. And that was bizarre to me. <laughs> just yeah. bizarre. Uh-huh. I couldn't, couldn't fathom it. But they said, you don't have to live like you're living. I thought I did, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so I think that that's right. And I've had therapists over the years. And the ones that I have been most, uh, the ones that, uh, again, I, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a therapist, anything like that, but the ones that I think I've benefited most from have expressed an interest in me, and even even probably worse, I, they get in trouble with told me what to do. <laughs> I know you're not supposed to do that, but they told uh-huh. me what to do, and I really uh-huh. appreciated it, because I was lost. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. I wanted somebody to tell me what to do, and I did it. And and so, and that you're right, that does kind of break down the that barrier. What is the status of that barrier now in the schools that teach psychoanalysis? Are you taught, are you taught to be very objective and distant? Um, well, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's very strange. I mean, initially Freud advocated that uh, the Alice be a blank slate um, because it was thought that if the analyst, if, if a patient knew the analyst as a real person, a real human being, um, that would stand in the way of a transference developing. And a transference, you know, it was hoped that a transference would be developed in the treatment so that then through the treatment it could be dissolved or resolved. Um but anyway, that's the basis for this blank slate uh, thinking. But the the reality is, and, and I've, I'm working on a third book now, and I've written about this um, Freud as really um, a, a parad. The, the third book is about my tentative title is "Celebrate the Wounded Healer Psychotherapist, Beware the Wounding." healer, mm-hmm. the therapist who hurts his patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in many ways, Freud, without intending to, he, uh, he, the way he worked with some patients, not all of them, uh, completely contradicted his blank slate theory. He socialized with patients. They came to his house, you know, mm-hmm. uh, met his family. He analyzed his own daughter. Yeah. And, abs- you know, which is, my God, that you, you don't do that. <laughs> you do not do, yeah. not do that. Yeah. Uh, and he, he may have, uh, you know, prevented her from ever developing a life of her own with, uh, you know, with uh, 
say um, a husband, maybe children. You know, she never did. Uh, she became his his spokesperson. Yeah. And his nurse when he was dying, mm-hmm. you know. But um, so this whole blank slate thing, I think we need to reevaluate. And this whole concept of the therapist's neutrality, that you're absolutely neutral. I think there are times when it's very good to be absolutely neutral. I think other times you have to take a very unambiguous stance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about something. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I agree with you completely. I mean, the, the thing about these like twelve-step programs is that's just what they do. They say, um, you know, if you do what you did, you'll get what you got, uh-huh. and if you do what we say to do, well, you might get better. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. They don't say anything right. else. Right. <laughs> they, don't, they don't tell you you have to do it. They just say if you do it, you might get better. And and uh-huh. you know, in many cases, it works. And in many cases, it, it does not work. I know that for a fact as well. But I, uh-huh. I am. Let me ask you another question. We're almost out of time, but. Did, it seems to me that in some ways that, that it, it is easier than ever before in human history to induce that manic defense. You can get drugs, you can get alcohol, you can get all the porn you want, you can get prostitutes, yeah. you can like it. It's just it's an amazing amount of it available uh-huh. to you. Is, is, uh-huh. that, is, 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 that, is that a is that a harmful part of our culture? Should we like think that that's something we should fight against? Um. I think a manic defense is a, a wonderful thing to have when you need one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when I had mine, it it got me through a very, you know, a couple of very, very painful days in my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'll always be grateful that I had that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I'm also grateful that I was able to stop it too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that because. You know, and and, and lots of lots of uh, recovering addicts and and alcoholics and, and 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 you know, to a person, all of them say pretty much the same thing, and, and that is that you know, drugs or alcohol are, are good for people who can use them, mm-hmm. but they're not good for people who can't. And the only, <laughs> unfortunately, the only way to find out that you can't is to use them. Right. <laughs> but right. for for, for right. everybody else out there, normies, that's just fine. You know, yeah. and they, I think that they are in many ways a good thing. I, if if you don't become addicted to them. They're a good thing. You know, a, a stiff drink after a bad day is okay. You know, mm-hmm. that's fine. Um, it's just for a certain section of the population who, you know, whose manic defenses are a little bit weak, they, yeah. the, uh, they, they take it to an extreme that causes them harm. And then they end up in your office or they end up with my friends in AA or NA or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. 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 And like I say, the, sad, the tragic part of it is that you just can't tell without running the experiment. And the experiment right. always hurts those people. Right. You, know, you can't right. say to somebody at 14, like, nope, you can't drink alcohol. <laughs> you know, I, yesterday I, I teach a class, of, uh, a master's level course for people getting a master's degree in mental health counseling. And two of the people in the class, their uh, placement, their agency placement, they have a supervised placement, is at uh, uh, a drug, uh, a, a drug or alcohol uh, rehab center. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, one of the people in the class is a woman who's almost forty years old, and I discovered that she had. She had started drinking when she was around 11. Yeah, you said that. Yeah. And was, she was already in a rehab while she was still in high school. Wow. Yeah, no, and, and she stopped drinking around 
five years ago mm-hmm. and has remained sober with yeah. the help of uh, AA. She, yeah. she said she usually goes to four meetings a week and yeah. she's feeling especially vulnerable, maybe mm-hmm. more than that, yeah. you know. But um, she discovered when, when, she, when she became alcoholic that uh, it ran in her family. Yeah. Uh, she hadn't known that. Yeah, no, you often do uh, discover But that. she she said that even if she had known it, she doesn't think it would have stopped her. Oh, you know, I don't, yeah, that's absolutely right. <laughs> that's absolutely right. I, yeah. I know that for a fact. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean, I am I am amazed by by her. You know, she's uh, she's very good at what she does, and she loves working with people. You know, with the chemical dependency. That's terrific. That's really terrific. Yeah. That's a good story. Yeah. Good story. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really uh, appreciate it, Sharon. Um, we usually close these interviews with a, with a question. We've we've already touched on it, and the question is, what are you working on now? Oh, my, uh, I'm working on the, a book about the wounded healer psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, I'm looking. Uh, I want to include a few chapters from therapists who think they are wounded healers. Wounded mm-hmm. healer is a concept that Jung developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's what I'm working okay, on well, now. Well, good luck uh, with that. Um, We've been talking with uh, Sharon Clayman Farber today about uh, hungry for ecstasy, trauma, the brain, and the influence of the '60s. And I promised Sharon who noted to me that the book is somewhat expensive, but you can get 30% off until June 30th, 2014. If I'm going to read this, you, you make sure you correct me if I'm wrong, Sharon. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is the code you'll need. If you go to the Rome, Roman and Littlefield website, this is the code. The, you we- need. the website is uh, Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N.com. Okay. Roman.com. And here is the yeah. code. If you want 30% off the book, eight S one four, J A C A T. I just want to uh, say you when you eight S. It's it's important. Uh, I I think people could hear it as F. Oh well, okay, S, right. S. Okay, but it's S, right? S. Yes, S. S so eight S one four. J-A-C-A-T. Right. Thanks very much. Um, okay. Again, Sharon, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. As I told you, I love to talk. <laughs> I enjoyed the conversation, too. Um, and let me say to everybody who is listening, uh, I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I hope everybody has a great week. 